Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. This episode, I talked to Pele Jorgensen, CEO and founder of Vera Mexicana, a Mexican food brand focused on bringing the experience of Mexican cuisine to you. We talk about their passion for a socially responsible and transparent food supply chain, the importance of choosing the right ingredient suppliers and building a genuine partnership with them, and how they use the depth and richness of Mexican culture to build an interesting and authentic brand. Pele was an amazing guest, and I think you'll learn a lot from this interview. Hi, Pele. Uh, welcome to the Physical Product Movement Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I was going to ask about um, your background. Um, looks like it was consulting and, and some finance, um, uh, maybe some analytics. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then you're from Denmark, but now you're living in San Diego and uh, you're running a food company. How, how did that all come about? So I wanted to do something else. And I've always loved food. Uh, a lot, <laughs> and of course, that not necessarily doesn't mean that you're you're qualified to be, you know, a, a chef or anything like that. But um, it's always been something that's been very dear to my heart. And you know, I I had the the amazing opportunity to go to Mexico, and it was just on vacation. Um, and what I saw there was a truly rich and complex, full of history, culture of food in a way that I didn't know personally. Um, and, you know, coming from Europe, uh, of course, we have a lot of fine cuisine from Italian to French or Spanish. And we have all these, these rich, complex stories around them. And everyone knows them and everyone can relate to them. And then walking around in, you know, these small pueblos in, in, uh, in Mexico, you, you just see that it's, it's almost like being in Italy. You know, they, they have these amazing raw ingredients. They spend hours upon hours, even days sometimes to cook a fantastic sauce or mole or uh, make a fresh salsa every morning or, you know, making their own tortillas, whatever it is. And I feel like there's so many people that didn't know about this. And I certainly didn't. So, you know, the combination of, of finding this kind of very unique flavor profile and food culture that I, I felt the world needed to know about. And then also seeing a need in the local communities um, 
when I when I did have the opportunity to visit and, and of course spent a lot of time since then in Mexico, what I've seen is it's been kind of difficult to deal with because it is and, and, and of course not difficult for me, but for for those that I meet with, uh, for example, you go out and you visit farmers and they'll tell you the same story over and over again. You know, I, I had this big deal with insert American company or insert European company to buy my harvest. And um, they made an agreement and now I'm going to, you know, I'll do it. And nine months from now, they're going to buy it. And then comes the, the actual harvest and the company comes and says, we'll pay you 20% less than we've agreed to. And a couple of things happened. I've heard these, these stories, you know, and, and, um, and just, just agreeing with you. Uh, as somebody who's traveled to both Italy and Mexico, you know, I've, I've also experienced, I think, some of what you're talking about, you know. And so anyway, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, it's it's all right. I can I can I can become a little bit uh, impassioned when I'm talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. That's why we have you on. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, well, anyway, you're you're there and you're and you're seeing this, um, you know, again and again and again. And what happens is the the fallout for the company is, of course, you know, either they get the product or they don't, they can probably buy it somewhere else if they don't get it at the price they want. But the farmer may have taken a loan to actually be able to invest in seeds, maybe expand their, uh, you know, the amount of farmland they have. Maybe they hired hands to help them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they are there in a the situation, even if they sell products because their margins are razor thin, well, they can't actually make a living with it. So maybe they have more loans afterwards than they had before. Oftentimes, either way, it ends up with the farmer uh, being destitute or not having improved their lot after a year or two years, however many years it is. Right, right. Um, and, and not to mention, it's just, just you know, call it unethical or dishonest, you know, um, but the, the farmers are the ones that suffer. Exactly. And... And and I, and we actually also want to kind of point out. So the next the next link in the supply chain often is is a local uh, producer or you know <clears throat> factory, and right. oftentimes people have this idea that you know they are the big guys, but uh, in our case at least we're working with these uh, also small producers, um, and and a lot of things that happen to the farmers happen to them as well, just in different ways. So one of the suppliers we worked with, um, very successful uh, around a decade ago um, in, in his local community, he was selling well. Um, Walmart in, in Mexico kind of reached out to him and he started selling to them. But what happened was they didn't pay him. So they would, they would wait more than six months to pay him because they had all the power in that relationship. Right. So... Even though his products were selling, he couldn't get enough cash to actually make things work. And what happened was that he went bankrupt. He had to start all over. Um, you know, that's his story. But from, from Walmart's perspective, in order to improve their own cash flow, you know, they, they push that down the supply chain. Understood. Understood. It, it's interesting. You, you see that in, even in the States, um, you know, you see that where a manufacturer or a supplier is often uh, delayed in their payment or sometimes just not paid, um, and they end up in, in these difficult situations as well. And, and these are people here in the United States who have a little bit more, um, you know, to say power in the in the relationship. Um, 
but uh, a small producer um, in, in rural Mexico, you know, it just seems like they, they wouldn't have very much power at all um, in that relationship. So it's not that surprising. It's it's very sad. And I, and I hate to hear that it happens. Um, but but uh, anyway, I, I want to know kind of, OK, so you saw this happening. I, I imagine, you know, it made you pretty angry and impassioned you in some way. So so what are you guys doing um, to to address this or to, to help out with any of these problems? Well, so. Um we've kind of attacked it from a, from a couple of different angles. Um, mm-hmm. We are, so we're working only selectively only with small producers and medium sized producers right now. And of course, you know, as we scale, that'll have to change. So we're, we're kind of thinking a lot about, okay, how do we make sure that we bring all those small producers with us on our journey? And uh, so the first kind of initiative we have is it's always been about uh, sort of like an, like a, you know, an educational relationship. They educate us on the products and the raw ingredients and how wonderful the culture is and the history and new recipes that we can make. And we help them, um, you know, think about business, think about the regulatory side of it, think about, you know, what do I need to do to take the next step? And this takes a lot of investment from us. We spend much more time with our suppliers than normal comparable companies do. Um, but the idea is that we want to help them. So, for example, you know, with one of our suppliers, um, he was having trouble figuring out his own books, his finances. You know, was he making products on the on the products? He, uh, sorry, was he, was he making profits on the products he was selling? Okay. And he trusted us enough to just share everything, and we created kind of a new system for him and and helped him figure out. You know, what do I actually make? What are my inputs? What are my outputs? And what is in everything in between? Yeah, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, it, it's it's at least something that we take very seriously, and it's not something you can really um, put a number to. Um, it's more time and investment in relationships. Right. I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't necessarily consider their suppliers as what they really are. Is it's a partnership, and so uh, you know, your your success is tied to their success, and I think that that's a very um, it's just a very good way of doing business. And um, so, so let's talk a little bit about how that uh, translates into a difference in your company or in, in your products. You know, what, what do you think, you know, this holistic view of, of that relationship with your supplier, what, what does that actually do uh, to, you know, maybe your quality or, or how does that affect your business? Well, I think it does uh, a whole number of things for us um, and for them. Uh, one is it, and hey, I'm just going to be honest, it makes us happy with yeah. what we're doing, um, which I think many people take for granted. No, it's not. It's not a small thing. It really isn't. I think too many people take that for granted. And that's it's very important for, for us that everyone who works for us feels that, you know, this is a part of it. Um, if we're talking more about the products, it it has meant that we've had access to uh, some products that don't exist right now in the market. Uh, especially in Northern Europe, but also uh, when we do launch in the U.S., um, the the products that we have are are made by people who have maybe made them for 50 years. Maybe they've had a farm for 100 years. Um, each product type is unique in that we've wor- we're working with some people who would almost assuredly not be able to access international markets 
And that, of course, gives us, uh, you know, a wonderful product and we're really happy to show it. But it also gives us uh, the opportunity to kind of put them at the forefront. This brand is not about us. It's not about uh, me, who's a Dane. I don't want to appropriate in any way Mexican culture. I want to show it and I want other people to experience it as I have had the opportunity to experience it. And by working so closely with these people and showing the importance of these relationships, um, we really have, have experienced tremendous growth in our suppliers in only a couple of years. And I can't wait to see what will happen in the next five years. Yeah, me too. And, and seeing that um, in, in our new product development, for example, when, when we say, you know, people in X market, they're really looking for something a little bit different, um, but we want to stay true to kind of your story. They are the ones who are helping us develop new recipes. So it's, it's a very, very deeply integrated partnership. Whereas I think many, many companies in the, uh, modern day, uh, kind of like <laughs> CPG market, um, make a recipe, go to a co-packer, sell product. Um, and for us, it takes a lot more time, takes a lot more effort, but we believe that the product that comes out and the story we're able to tell and the people we're able to help along the way makes it all worth it. Right. Right. I think it adds a, a richness and sort of an authenticity to, to your brand and to your story and to your products. Um, so so let's uh, let's go back in, in time a little bit. All right. So you have this idea that you want to launch. Um, and and it, was it hot sauce? Was that the, the first product that you launched? Yeah, we, we launched with uh, with hot sauces and fruit sauces. <laughs> yeah. So you have this idea. What what was your path like? What what were the first things that you did? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we were sitting back in Denmark um, after having both traveled to to Mexico and in, in, in different sort of like uh, during different trips, and I had brought back, and this was even before we were, we started the company. I had brought back, I don't know, fifteen different sauces, hot sauces, mm -hmm. cooking sauces, everything, just because I love this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And I was just looking at all this and said. You know, if we could just bring these products right here to Denmark, we would have a we would have a business. So what we did was we looked at these labels that we had bought on the market, and sometimes there was no email, sometimes there was, uh, sometimes there was a number, um, and we just started googling. And then we um, we found all the people for the sauces we had, and you know we made a, a list of I don't know how many people it was, let's say fifty, um, and then we went to Mexico. And we visited a whole bunch and, and it was, you know, <laughs> that first trip was the, the craziest uh, experience I've ever had in that it was so rich with uh, experiences, but also that, you know, some, some genuinely insane things happened. So for example, we met some folks who, who were making sauces. We don't work with them now. Uh, I'll keep their name out of it. Um, but they, uh, they invited us to kind of go look at some farms with them. And we're like, sure, let's, uh, let's do it. And, um, we got in their car and, and it was, uh, this, this one guy, uh, let's, let's call him, uh, Alejandro for purposes of this call. <laughs> um, and Alejandro had just bought a new car and he was very excited about it. And when we drove through the mountains, I have never in my entire life driven a hundred miles per hour on small mountain roads, oh, geez. but, um, we certainly did there. <laughs> and, 
And, you know, uh, would I get into his car again? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but when you're working with, in, in places where the culture is significantly different than what you're used to, one of the things you have to be willing to is kind of like take a leap of faith. And most of the times, it's amazing what comes back, right? We've had home-cooked meals that have been amazing, by, made by people who just wanted to show what they could do. And then, you know, on the other side, you have experiences like this where it's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> where you're fearing for your life a little bit, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. And so um, compare your, your product that, um, the way it is now um, to when you initially um, launched uh, your first version. Um, are there any significant differences or, you know, are, are there any changes that you had to make along the way? Um, for some of the flavors, We've had to, um, which I, I guess one could anticipate, but we've had to make them a little bit milder for the Northern European market. I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's funny because I, I have a I have a twelve year old son who loves any kind of sauce. He's always interested. He's definitely a sauce guy. He's always interested in trying the latest sauce, and he particularly likes really hot um, hot sauces. And so. Um, Let's just say there are some things that he is happy with that uh, that me or my wife can't handle. You know, it's, it's just not <laughs> enjoyable. So, so imagine. So it was a little. It was a little too hot. Um, you needed to to make it a little more mild. Uh, yes, and and it's actually kind of funny because we don't really have super hot sauces uh, by American standards. Oh, okay. um, this is actually something a lot of uh, a lot of folks kind of often misunderstand about Mexican cuisine is. They think of super hot and very spicy, lots of chili. Um, but one of the things that we want to showcase is the incredible diversity of chilies, for example. So if you look at, you know, Mexican cuisine, northern Mexican is significantly spicier than southern Mexican. And I'm not saying that southern Mexican doesn't use a lot of chilies. They certainly do. And they certainly also have spicy food. But what uh, across Mexico you see is, uh, a use of chilies in a way that we don't use them elsewhere. And, you know, chilies kind of originated down in, in Bolivia, you know, 15,000 years ago, uh, 20,000 years ago, whatever the number is, um, as, as, a, as a chili called like a chiltepin, kind of is the modern version of, of a wild ancient chili. And since then, they've been, you know, cultivated everywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, they, they're called different things, but they all originated there. And now they, we have, you know, around... I don't know, five major species or major have categories of chilies. And in Mexico alone, you know, you have hundreds. And as opposed to many other places in the world, um, they use all of them. So, you know, uh, people in the U.S. maybe know a guajillo or an ancho. Um, but then you have, you know, uh, cascabel, you have uh, arbol, you have uh, pasilla, pasilla mije, um, a whole plethora. And of course, I'm just mentioning some of the few that they have. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and what they do with the chilies is <clears throat> a lot of these chilies aren't actually, don't have a lot of capsaicin in them. Capsaicin being the, the uh, you know, the spicy ingredient, if you will. Um, and so they'll make sauces that you, you think are spicy, but are actually much more about the incredible umame of the chili or the depth and flavor of, let's say, um, you know, the wood or the smoke that you're going to get from it or the earthiness um, from other chilies. 
Or, you know, if you look at an ancho or a pasilla, you have this sweetness kind of like a, you know, um, almost like a fig or a, um, kind of like these, these, these different fruits that we think of because fundamentally chilies are fruits. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I just did a chocolate tasting, and so um, you're kind of reminding me of the of the, the guy describing all the different chocolates and the, just the wide variety of, of tastes that uh, that come from, you know, the the same cacao plant. Um, but but it just yeah, they can be processed in different ways um, depending on on where the you know the the the, the fruit is, is grown. It can affect the flavor profile. I just didn't ever really think about that with chilies, um, but it seems like there's very much the same the same type of thing going on there. A- absolutely, and you know we're not only about chilies. We have <clears throat> a fairly wide portfolio of what we would call high quality Mexican ingredients. So we work with an organic cacao farmer um, who has amazing uh, criollo. Rubio, which is uh, uh, Rubio is, a, is a bean type that comes from only that part of Mexico, and they have um, their hacienda has been around for around 150 years with the same family there, and you know take a turn to a different way. Um, and we <clears throat> we also work with uh, Mexican vanilla, and you know again one of the things that very few people think about when they think Mexico is vanilla because. You know, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but vanilla originated in Mexico. No, I didn't know that. Huh. In the yeah, in the region of uh, Veracruz, um, the kind of the ancient Aztecs were the first to cultivate vanilla, and they, you know, were using it for for um, for drinks, uh, especially back then. And uh, you know, when I say cultivate, I mean go out in the wild and pick vanilla, not necessarily actually be. Um, <clears throat> what do you call it, uh, pollinating it like we do now. Right. What happened was, you know, back in the, you know, when the French came and the Spanish, they started exporting vanilla and, you know, French brought it all the way down to French Polynesia and, and Madagascar. And now, of course, people think vanilla, they think Madagascar. But the vanilla orchid is, in fact, from Mexico. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So let's, um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, why, you know, why I focus on, on the Danish market. And, um, you know, you already mentioned that, um, that there's not a ton of competition. Um, it, was that the primary reason or um, what, what was your thinking behind uh, focusing on, on uh, the Danish market? Well, you know, being from there, uh, there's been this incredible uh, journey in my lifetime in Danish uh, chefs and cooks and restaurants and the culinary scene in Denmark. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, the, the, the food that people ate was, you know, uh, a big roast boiled potatoes and some greens on the side. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not, I'm not that old. <laughs> I have to be honest. That that sounds pretty good though. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's pretty good, but, uh, maybe, maybe a little variety would, would be nice, huh? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's delicious, and, and and Danish food, you know, classic Danish food, traditional Danish food is, is amazing. But but what's happened, you know, over the past twenty years with with Noma and and basically the whole family around Noma of all the chefs that's been there and have now created, you know, Michelin restaurants around the world. Um, Denmark has seen an incredible uh, development in its food and culinary scene, and in the last, let's say, you know, ten years or so, 
um, Mexican food has really started showing up in restaurants. The last five years, we've seen an incredible development where we had maybe a couple of restaurants, um, uh, Mexican restaurants in Copenhagen, uh, the capital of Denmark. Now we have uh, dozens. And, and so we saw this opportunity where it hit the restaurants first. And we believe it's going to go into the supermarkets and create kind of this new category. It already exists uh, as Tex-Mex, but there is no real Mexican category. And that's what we hope to, to kind of bring there. Okay, I see. Um, and um, how much is your, uh, of your business is, is retail versus online? Um, most of it is, is, uh, is retail right now. Uh, we have focused... Um, in, in, so again, Denmark being a quite a different market. We're both in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway now. Um, and in those regions, we're focusing on retail because that's where we believe we can have the biggest impact. Kind of like educationally, get people to see it, uh, show recipes. Um, and we're trying to create, of course, uh, a full universe for people to enter into. Um, with our website, we have a lot of stories about how we work with the people we work with and the recipes that people can make with our products, et cetera, et cetera. Um, while I think in the US, you know, we're going to have a different model uh, as it is quite a, mu a much more mature market in the, in the Mexican category. And we'll focus uh, a lot more on, uh, on DTC over here um, as opposed to in Denmark, where it's kind of you have to educate the user about and the customer about okay, what is it I actually have here. Understood. Um, and how did you, um, you know, once you you had your initial product, how did you think about getting into some of these uh, supermarkets um, that you were able to get distribution in? Well, we we've always been very focused on finding the correct partners to work with. Um, so we had a pretty clear target from day one. Um, <clears throat> of working with uh, the chain that we're currently working with. They're a small, high-end uh, chain mm -hmm. that allows us the flexibility to kind of show our products in the way that we think that they need to be shown in order to really um, get Mexican culture in there. And then once we have tried and, and kind of tested our model, the, the plan is, of course, to kind of like expand a little bit more. But it is with this idea that um, we want always to stay true to the products and to the local communities in Mexico that are making the products. So what, what do you mean by, uh, by uh, you know, that they allow you to show your products in, in that way? Um, what, is there anything specific that they were doing for you guys? Um, so <clears throat> the ones we work with, they, uh, they were actually, they've been working with uh, a lot of smaller startups in Denmark uh -huh. with the idea of uh, working in a more socially sustainable way. So, you know, uh, everyone pays their suppliers better. They work with us as a small supplier on making sure that we can live up to regulatory requirements, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, they, it kind of meshed completely with how we wanted to do business. Um, and that has, you know, borne out really well because now that we, when we introduce products, they're, you know, they're a partner for us um, and they want to see, okay, which way can we take it? And it also allows us to work with them on, you know, marketing materials and campaigns the right way in order to, you know, target the people we want to target and also tell them the story we want to tell them. Okay, great. Great. Um, yeah, and I think a, a theme that's kind of coming out on this conversation is, uh, is pick the right partners um, and uh, treat each other well. 
So that, that sounds great. Um, you've mentioned a couple times that you're considering a U.S. launch. Is that, uh, is that already, um, do you have that on the schedule? What's your timeline for, for that? Uh, I'm very happy you asked. Uh, I probably have forgotten to talk about it myself. Um, yes, we are actually bringing up the product uh, as we speak and hope to have it uh, next week in California. And the idea is from there to start selling, uh, you know, directly to consumers, test out the products a little bit more. Um, since, you know, we've primarily gone into Europe. And as I said, the markets are quite different. We anticipate may maybe having to make some changes to sizing. Um, or to kind of slight flavor profile changes. Okay. So um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, different challenges that, that you may have had. And, and, you know, just maybe considering this from the view of somebody who's considering getting into, into um, the world of, of launching a physical product, and particularly a food brand. Um, are, do you have any advice that you could offer to, to somebody that's considering that? Or, or maybe... Um, um, you know, an example of a mistake that you made that could help them to avoid that mistake? <laughs> We've made so many mistakes over <laughs> the past two and a half years that uh, it would have to be a very long meeting for me to go through them all. Uh, no, in truth, uh, what I mean by that is it's a little bit of a, of a joke, of course, because the fact of the matter is that if you do this right and you're dealing with as much complexity as as we are as a relatively small, but, you know, we have 30 SKUs, um, uh, all with kind of, uh, we have labels for the U S labels for Europe. What you, what I've found is that the complexity of dealing with, uh, the CPG market is what is most difficult. And by complexity of the CPG market, I mean, both on the demand and the supply side. So, you know, supermarkets have very high requirements to punctuality, uh, the way you package things, uh, how it looks when it gets there, the quality of the product, of course. Uh, and that means that, you know, small mistakes can have incredibly large outsize um, impact on your business. At the same time, on the supply side, <clears throat> you know, especially for us with a relatively long, uh, you know, uh, let's say three months, two and a half months from we order a product to we kind of have it in our hands at our warehouse. Um, you know, it can have a really large impact on you if your production run is wrong, you label incorrectly, um, and anything really in between. Let's say that the cases have the wrong barcodes on them. And I guess my, if someone is, you know, sitting here and listening to this and thinking, oh, I, I want to start my own food company. Well, my, my first tip is just do it and don't look back and be comfortable with making mistakes because you're going to make them. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, well, um, I wanted to maybe broaden this a little bit. Um, your parent company is is Get uh, Good Taste, um, and you obviously have multiple brands. Um, how do you uh, you know think about this? How do you split your time and, and your focus? Um, I'm sure you get pulled in many different directions. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I chuckle because you know uh, time management is is most most definitely the the most important part of my day. Um, we right now have two of our own brands, so our, like that we've developed ourselves, and then we also carry a couple of other brands in Denmark for um, other Mexican companies, notably some mezcal companies. And on top of that, we um, <clears throat> we import uh, sort of like 
a variety of Mexican, what I call basic goods. So let's say canned goods, you need tomatillos, um, <clears throat> beans, et cetera. And, and so we, we have actually quite a, quite a broad business right now and working with both the wholesale market in Denmark, uh, the DTC market and, uh, you know, the retail market and managing all this means that it puts an tremendous, tremendous amount of pressure on, uh, me as the CEO of the company, but also on the entire management team in order to kind of like focus our attention and the way we've decided to at least uh, approach this strategic uh, issue is working with uh, uh, our own little board. Um, we have brought in someone from the outside from the beginning. Her name is uh, Yosha Gargaya. She is a, a partner in a sort of a high-level strategy consulting company. And she helps us, you know, focus our attention. What are the strategic targets? And how should we be spending our time? Those are two of the most important questions that we ask of her. And we expect her to kind of uh, help us navigate this this difficult path. Excellent, excellent. Well, it, it sounds like um, you know you've got you've got uh, quite a few brands, quite a few SKUs. Are there any that you're particularly excited about? Um, maybe more than more than the others, but maybe something new that's on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, so so we we've been working on uh, figuring out the correct tortilla. And what do I mean when I say the correct tortilla? I mean a high quality tortilla that uh, is preferably organic. And we're hoping to, you know, approach this uh, in 2021 to find a good solution. And I know you didn't ask me this in particular, but the, the complexities are, you know, uh, do you want to go fresh or do you want preservatives? Preservatives, of course, what supermarkets wants. Um, but the in the U.S., you have such a vast variety of, of tortillas in the market that you do not in Denmark. So we want to kind of innovate in that, in that space. Um, and that's something we're, we're quite excited about. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, well, let me, uh, let's maybe switch gears. I've got um, quick fire round here as we get ready to, to, to close up. Um, I've got five quick questions for you. Um, just, just tell me uh, just a, a fast answer and uh, we'll just go from there. You ready? Okay. All right. Well, what's one tool or resource that you rely on to, to run on your to run your business? Uh, let's say it is for sure uh, project management tools. So uh, we use Trello. Trello. Yeah, that's a very popular one uh, in this space. Um, what is uh, one book that has helped you uh, in your product journey? Uh, I actually have it right next to me. Uh, it's uh, Peppers of the Americas by Maricel E. Priscilla. And it is uh, an amazing book that basically tells the story of where peppers came from and why they are what they are now. <laughs> That's awesome. I can't say we've ever heard that answer before. Peppers <laughs> of America. That's awesome. Um, what is uh, one piece of advice that you'd give to your 21-year-old self? <laughs> don't, don't be afraid to just go out and do something. And I know that many entrepreneurs say this, but I just can't stress it enough. If you have it in you, just go out and start something. Awesome. It's going to be more fun than anything you can do. Yep. And, and kind of stress the importance of learning on the job, right? A lot of this you can't anticipate. You just learn it as you come across it. That's great advice. Um, who is one person in the world that you would uh, uh, love to take to lunch? Oh, what, a, what an excellent question. I, I've always been incredibly fascinated by, uh, by politics also as, a, as an aside. And 
right now, given our current times, I would I would just die to take Donald Trump to lunch. <laughs> what the hell he has been thinking the last four years? That would be a very interesting lunch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, we don't have to go any deeper. Sure, sure. Um, and what's what's your situation? Are you single, married, kids? I am uh, married to uh, my wife, Allison. Okay, awesome. Um, all right, as we wrap up here, um, you know, you've already given a little bit of advice, but is there, you know, any any parting words of advice that you'd give to people who are, are grinding it out in the, the world of physical products? <laughs> uh, not so much, uh, I guess, like a specific set of advice, but I, I tend to tell people just to have endurance and have faith in yourself. Um, it's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And, you know, if you do things right, treat people well, you have respect for people you work with, it'll work out in the end. Okay. That's great. And uh, is there anything that you want to promote or plug? I would just love for people to explore more uh, about Vera Mexicana and you can do that at our website, veramexicana.com. And, you know, in particular, uh, I hope we can help people learn a little bit about all the culture of Mexico and what they have to offer. Okay, great. And we'll include that, uh, that link in the show notes. Um, and if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, that's just uh, Pele, my first name, P-E-L-L-E, at getgoodtaste.com. Okay, awesome. Well, look, it's, uh, Pele, it's been good uh, uh, talking to you, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to jump on the podcast with us. Um, it's been an awesome interview, and I, I think a lot of people are going to get value out of this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. It's my pleasure. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Ken. All right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Real quick before this episode starts, I want to ask you, are you still using spreadsheets to manage your inventory, suppliers, co-packers, and production? Unless you're a wizard with cells and formulas, you can only grow so much with spreadsheets. When you're selling on your website, in retail stores, in online marketplaces, and more, it gets hard to track your inventory levels. Stockouts become a regular occurrence, and fulfilling orders keep you awake at night. Use Fiddle instead. Our software is built to help CPG businesses like yours scale more easily, with constant insight into your inventory and production at all levels. Go to fiddle.io to learn more and schedule a personalized demo.